News, politics, and special guests with a Texas twist. That's the goal of the Luke Macias Show. Our nation and state are at a crossroads, and if you're not informed, you're not equipped to make the change that our community needs. Join the conversation and join the cause for liberty today. Hey guys, I'm bringing you a midweek podcast update, which I don't do regularly, but uh, the Supreme Court decided to make a pretty monumental decision, which I wanted to uh, get you some more information on. So I brought Josh Hammer and Matt Rinaldi, two of the smartest attorneys I know, to the table to talk about the implications of the Supreme Court ruling. So if you uh, have seen the news and seen some of the headlines out there and the information, I think you'll really enjoy just the next 10 to 15 minutes so that you can get a little bit of an update on uh, really what the Supreme Court decided and what the potential ramifications and implications of those decisions are. And then as conservatives, how we view that result, and then maybe how we reevaluate what we do moving forward. So anyways, hope you really enjoy the conversation. Well, I am uh, pleased to be joined by Josh Hammer and Matt Rinaldi, two of the smarter attorneys that I personally know in uh, both the state of Texas and the, the nation as a whole. Maybe that means I need to get to know more lawyers or probably it means that y'all might be smart people. So um, we had the Supreme Court of the United States make um, a rather remarkable decision. Uh, and wanted to bring both of you on just to have a discussion about that. Josh, why don't you, instead of me explaining things in layman's terms, why don't you kind of tell us what the Supreme Court decided and what your take is on it? We'll go to Matt. I'm Luke, obviously. Always a pleasure to be on with you and Matt. So look, Title VII in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which deals with employment law, we're talking about discrimination and making rudimentary employment law, hiring and firing decisions prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. Now, at the time that this was drafted in 1964, sex meant what sex means to a random person you would find on the street, which is that there are two sexes. There is man and there is woman, and you cannot discriminate on the basis of that in hiring and firing decisions. For the past 15, 20, maybe even longer than that, 30 years, the left and especially leftist Democrats at both the federal and oftentimes state level across the country have pushed various forms of Employment Non-Discrimination Act type provisions that would add sexual orientation and gender identity as additional protected classes under Title VII um, for employment law decisions. Now, for 53 years, from 1964 until 2017, when the first federal court held to the contrary, no one contested what I just said, that sex meant sex. But apparently, according to a 6-3 Supreme Court majority yesterday, led by none other than uh, Republican nominee Neil Gorsuch himself says that for 53 years we were all wrong and that sex as it was written in 1964 actually requires private employers to not discriminate as well on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, it, obviously, Luke, the latter um, gender identity was not, it was not even a thing. Like it, it was literally not a concept at the time this statute was written. Uh, but nonetheless, we are told by the uh, nine rubbed oracles that uh, the word sex in 1964 nonetheless means what it, uh, at least from my perspective, quite clearly does not mean. Yeah. Matt? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you summarized it rather well. And one of the interesting things about the opinion is it, it effectively did redefine sex as sexual identity and sexual preference. The way he got about that was saying that, um, well, you can't take into account sex. And since if somebody had a significant other who was a man and they were a woman, 
if they're a man, you're treating them differently. So therefore you're considering sex in your hiring or firing decision. The same thing with if they choose to dress or identify as a woman, if it was a woman, you wouldn't say anything about it. So you're using sex to identify. That, that was Gorsuch's reasoning in this. But if you take that to its logical conclusion, look in the same uh, statute in Title IX. Um, well, you, you have to ask that question when you're talking about women's sports or the number of scholarship you reserve for women. Um, so effectively, this is mandating that we, I, I mean, taken to its logical conclusion, it's mandating that we uh, completely abandon the protections that we put into place for women in Title IX. Uh, and in fact, I mean, take it to, to its logical conclusion as implications for speech, for religious liberty, um, for, you know, obviously sex discrimination uh, in an act that was originally intended to prevent discrimination on the basis of sex or religion. Now Gorsuch's uh, uh, decision now requires discrimination uh, on the basis of sex or religion. There, I know there were some things in the opinion regarding some religious protections or what they would call like exemptions. Um, are either of y'all kind of familiar with some of the things that were put into the opinion about that? Mostly punts on these issues. Um, he mostly says that a lot of what we're talking about here is fair game for future cases. Now he does say um, that RIFRA remains obviously the law of the land, which it obviously is. Now it's gonna be on the one hand, fascinating. On the other hand, also genuinely frightening and terrifying to watch how courts in the future, um, and by, by the future, I mean probably over the next year or two, um, start interpreting the statutory interplay between RIFRA and Title VII as uh, not as interpreted, as legislatively amended by a 6-3 court majority. Um, that's, uh, but everything that we're now thinking, we're talking obviously about uh, Christian schools, Orthodox Jewish day schools, being able to make hiring and firing decisions on the basis of what the Bible actually says. Um, it's not an exaggeration. It is not fear-mongering to say that these decisions are going to be litigated. Um, and uh, Gorsuch, is, he tries to basically say that's not before the court, but as Matt so obviously says, um, in legal reasoning, in legal principles, it's you can, you can say, you can say to the cameras or to the masses with your pen, that was before the court is not actually before the court, but of course, in, in some respect, it actually is. Because when you codify a principle, those principles necessarily have consequences. And it's gonna be really, 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 really scary, I think, to see what happens for, for religious liberty here. It's not fear-mongering, the, the consequences will be real. And uh, I, I was, when I was looking through the decision, my non-lawyer mind took me back to 2017. Matt knows this story, Josh, but, um, we had this problem in Texas where there was this privacy act that was getting debated that had to do with men trying to go into women's locker rooms in public schools. And so they said, hey, maybe we shouldn't do that. And our Republican speaker thought it was a social issue that they wanted to avoid. So he killed, you know, kept the legislation killed and didn't want to talk about it. So uh, Matt and a couple of his colleagues, including Representative Tony Tinderholt from Arlington, decided to get creative with ways of having the debate uh, if the speaker wasn't going to let us have it. And so the Uber bill came up before the House and uh, it had in it non-discrimination language, right? So it said that and it, this was Uber trying to pass this like statewide, you know, regulation so that cities couldn't ban them from operating in the cities. 
And there was just simple NDA language in there that said, hey, Uber drivers cannot discriminate based on race, sex, blah, blah, blah. And so we added an amendment into that NDA language. Tony Tinderholt offered one that said, sex is defined as the biological state of one's being, male or female. And, um, and it got all sorts of controversy. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know who it was discriminating against, first and foremost. So there's this big debate. Are you discriminating against somebody or are you not? And Tinderholt just said, no, I'm just stating sex means this, right? That's all. And so it passed. Then Uber decided they didn't know what it meant either. So they actually publicly opposed their own bill and then asked you know, for the language to get taken out. It created this whole controversy. But what I found interesting was we were doing it as kind of a publicity stunt and also a way to say, hey, let's have the debate on gender fluidity now, whether you'll let us or not. But it feel, I feel like Gorsuch is basically saying, no, you literally need to put that in every statute that sex means exactly this. Because otherwise, you let me, Neil Gorsuch, decide what sex means, however I feel like it means 50 years after it's passed in the law. Well, yeah, I mean... I wasn't doing it as a publicity stunt. I was doing it literally because I could foresee this decision yes. coming down in the next <laughs> couple yep. of years. Yep. Uh, I didn't know it would come down with a, a conservative court. Yep. Um, and, and you saw even the GOP was very uncomfortable with it. And I think that brings us to a bigger context is, you know, what, what after this decision with the court essentially becoming a legislative body and changing the meaning of this very important statute, what, what's the purpose of the GOP? You know, what are we doing? I, I think we seriously need to re-examine our purpose and our tactics, right? I mean, we're, we're in a war right now. When you look at what's happening, uh, we have a, a, a metaphorical and natural, in some instances, insurrection that's being encouraged and supported by one of our two major political parties. Um, we have Democrats that are calling out their colleagues as racist and sicking the, the, the mob on them. Um, meanwhile, our Republicans are sharing social media messages, palling around with Democrats and talking about sports. I mean, you have Christians under attack. Our cities are burning. I don't know if there's going to be an America that's going to exist for my son, but whoop-de-doo, my legislator made a new friend. I mean, we're, we're in a war. These people asked to be on the front lines. Uh, grow a pair and do your job. Josh, what do you think about a lot of the, uh, the, the federal, you know, reactions to Gorsuch's decision? Because I think the Republican Party is in kind of a tough place. What do they say when, you know, the guy they lauded as, as their option? And the Supreme Court has been such a big issue for Republicans each election year. What, what kind of position are they in? I tweeted yesterday morning, shortly after the decision came down, what is the purpose of the Republican Party? I think I got like eight or 9,000 likes, something like that. And I mean, I think, so I think a lot of conservatives seem to also be questioning what is the purpose of the Republican Party. These are fair questions. I mean, look, I, I was told that even if the Republican Party would not touch cultural issues, if they would not touch uh, immigration, transgender, as many of like the wedge cultural issues, I was, I was informed, Luke, by the powers that be, that the GOP was at least good for three things. Judges cutting taxes and like maybe bombing terrorists overseas. Um, I, I, the first plank, arguably the single most important plank, by the way, for the reason that Trump is president in the first place. If you go back to the 2016 exit polling, a plurality of Trump issues selected the Supreme Court and specifically at the time uh, filling Anthony Scalia's seat as the number one issue that they voted for uh, for then candidate Trump. 
Um, so if we throw that out the window, if the Republican Party cannot get judges right, um, it, it's really not clear what exactly the purpose is. And just to contextualize this, I know this, you know, this is not going to be news, obviously, to either of you or to the very informed viewers in the audience. But the Republican Party, this is not exactly a new phenomenon where the GOP has had a problem with picking uh, faithful conservative judges. This is a problem going back literally 50, 60, maybe even 70 years, like the Eisenhower administration, John Paul Stevens, David Souter, Harry Blackman. I, I, I mean, all, John Roberts, obviously, Anthony Kennedy. Uh, these are oh, all Republican Lord. nominees. Yeah, exactly. These are all Republican nominees. Many, many of our own worst enemies on the high court were nominated by the GOP. So um, what is the purpose of the Republican Party? What does the so-called conservative legal movement and the Federal Society even like purport to stand for anymore? These are all totally fair questions. Um, I don't have all the answers, obviously, but we need to start asking these questions and reforming institutions accordingly. Uh, Matt, I know, I feel like years ago, even a couple of years ago, when different conservative lawmakers would say, hey, I want to pass these policies in opposition to precedents set by the Supreme Court, it was still put, there was a lot of pushback you got within the GOP. Do you think even that is going to see a shift potentially with, within the lawmaking conversations? I hope so. I mean, we need new strategies. I, I, I remember back when I was a young and uh, I was on the, I was a caller on the Rush Limbaugh show and I had talked about a different approach to judicial conservatism um, because this, this wasn't going to work long-term. And I remember he didn't even understand. I mean, Rush is, I mean, even, even a strong conservative like him didn't understand it, never mind other, other individuals in the movement. Um, we need to be talking about um, a, a different approach, I think, to um, how we choose our judges and their philosophy. I mean, we can talk about tactics in terms of whether or not uh, we need the president, and I think we do, to set a precedent by uh, selectively defying. Uh, a federal court decision uh, in order to take back more power to the executive branch and, and you know, legislative branch and executive branch. Uh, I, I do think we need to re-examine what it means to be a judicial conservative. Uh, simply saying judicial restraint isn't going to cut it. Um, we need to elect men and women who uh, will disregard bad precedent, uh, interpret the Constitution the way it was meant to be interpreted, and have our guys ram it down their throats just like they do to us. Um, we have two people on the court right now, Alito and Justice Thomas, who are willing to do that. And we need more men like that. Josh, any other final thoughts? Every single word that Matt just said, I, I'm in wholehearted agreement there. It, it, it's so crazy. There literally are two reliable justices on the court. I mean, like the left freaks out this big, bad conservative court is going to overturn Roe versus Wade. I mean, for God's sake, I mean, we have people defecting on all the major issues. I mean, like the DACA case is going to come out soon. I mean, hard to have your hard to have high hopes for that one at this point, right? Um, but uh, I mean, look, the question is what comes next? You know, Luke, I'm not sure when, when this podcast will be released, but we're recording this on Tuesday. Josh Hawley had a fascinating floor speech just about two hours ago, maybe a little under two hours ago where he declared the end of the conservative legal movement as we know it on the Senate floor. Um, Hawley himself went to Yale Law School. He was like president of his Fed Sock chapter there. He clerked for the chief justice of the Supreme Court. So when he says something like that, it actually carries sway. It has impact. And what theoretically and jurisprudentially we stand for is going to be the focus of a lot of 
um, kind of a nerdy kind of a lawyer inside baseball type conversations. I mean, Professor Adrian Vermeule of Harvard made a lot of waves for his post-originalism, common good constitutionalism essay in late March, early April. Um, I had a response uh, last May called common good originalism that was trying to paint something of a middle ground path forward. But um, all of these competing theories of jurisprudence, I think, are basically fair game. Because if, as Josh Hawley said in his floor speech, if textualism gets you to what Neil Gorsuch uh, did, even, and, and, and look, that's not good textualism, but if, yeah. if, if, if a Republican nominee is doing what he thinks is good textualism and it gets to that result, then textualism itself has an issue. Matt, any other final thoughts? No, I, I, I agree. We need to, um, we need to re-examine what it means, means to be a judicial conservative. We need, in the broader fight, uh, a greater focus on public education, which, which reps have been unwilling to even touch, universities, our culture. Um, we need to look at it in a much broader perspective because we do. We're really building our movement from the ground up. And, and whether that be a, a different approach to uh, a different approach to thought like, um, like Josh had just mentioned, I, I, I particularly, uh, Randy Barnett was my, my common law professor, so I, I particularly like his approach to textualism and an original meaning approach at the time. Uh, which wouldn't have arrived at this decision, of course. Um, it, it, but there are a lot of different competing philosophies, but, but the simple conservative judicial philosophy of uh, a, a sort of vague textualism slash originalism when it suits the justices and, um, you, you know, outcome-based judging uh, just isn't going to do it anymore. Um, so we need to change. Well, guys, thank you both. Uh, don't want to keep you too much longer, but uh, I'm very appreciative of you giving me a little bit of your time, and we'll be releasing this here pretty soon. Um, it's uh, it's a good conversation to have. I think Republicans and conservatives can take a look at what we're being presented as the outcomes of our efforts and say, hey, we should take a different approach. And the problem is that many of our leaders uh, don't seem to reevaluate when the you know, when the outcomes end up very different uh, than they were before, they just often uh, say, "Well, let's find a new way of saying that, and let's cover up uh, these mistakes and and continue on with the same old." So that's why I'm appreciative of, of Senator Hawley saying what he said, and let's hope that a couple others are willing to join that chorus and take a little bit of a different approach. Thank you both for for joining and giving some of your insights. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Luke Messias Show. If you value this content and want our message to spread, please consider three of the following steps. One, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on and leave us a review. Two, visit lukemessias.com and sign up for our email alerts. And three, follow Raz and I on Twitter and visit my Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Texas. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Luke Macias, Texas. Thank you so much and God bless.